As the children are going to child ministry this morning, let's get our Bibles out. We're in Ephesians chapter 4. Bring our hearts before the Lord. Did you worship the Lord this morning? Yes. Amen. Worship prepares us for the Word. It prepares our heart to receive the Word of God. So as we worship you, Lord, this morning, we trust that our hearts are prepared to receive what the Holy Spirit has for us. We're in Ephesians 4. We've been doing a series on uh, spiritual improvements. I mentioned the first service that notice the title of the series is not spiritual self-improvements. The problem is the self word there because we started this at the beginning of the year in January for New Year's and everybody is doing these self-generated resolutions and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that and you know when it comes to that sort of thing it rarely lasts but when God initiates change in his people he empowers them by the Holy Spirit to genuinely have lasting change and so we're seeing spiritual improvements that the Lord listed in Ephesians 4 they are things for all God's people uh, to have worked into their lives. I'm going to read you uh, verses 25 through 32 in just a minute. We are going to focus in on the second half of verse 31 this morning. I'll highlight that for you. Uh, let's thank God and let's jump in. Father, we thank you for the word. We thank you for this study that challenges us to uh, grow into the image of Jesus Christ, to uh, to embrace the changes that you've initiated for your people. So, Lord God, work in us and through us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. And the church said, Amen. Ephesians 4, starting in verse 25. Therefore, ridding yourself of falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, because we are parts of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. The one who steals must no longer steal, but rather he must labor, producing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something left to share with the one who has need. Let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but if there is any good word for edification according to the need of the moment, say that, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Verse 31, all bitterness, wrath, and anger this week, clamor, and slander must be removed from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, compassionate, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. And last time we were together, we looked at verse 31. We covered bitterness, wrath, and anger. This week, we're going to look at clamor, slander, and malice. We've covered a lot of topics here that the Lord wants to work into his people. We looked at lying, anger, stealing, controlling what comes out of our mouths. How many think controlling what comes out of your mouth could be possibly the hardest one to deal with? Anyone? Anyone ever contemplated that duct tape might be the solution? Come on. It can't, if it can't get out, Johnny, I mean, I think I'm safe. But, you know, did you ever say something that you wish you could get back? Come on, married people. You said it. And she'll never forget it. <laughs> All right. So we're talking about grieving the Holy Spirit. And uh, that, that's a whole other issue. And, and uh, the, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, we looked at that. Last time we looked at three of the six issues in verse 31, bitterness, wrath, and anger. Uh, today we'll unpack the last three, clamor, slander, and malice. But before we dive into those three issues, a few thoughts about dealing with fleshly attitudes and appetites that remain in us after we've come to Christ. 
you know, uh, in light of 2 Corinthians 5.17, sometimes there could be a little confusion in us uh, because this is what 2 Corinthians 5.17 says. Listen to this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have, that's past tense, old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. Now, how many believe that that scripture is true and relevant and real? Amen. Well, half of you, praise God. Uh, the truth is we believe in 2 Corinthians 5.17. So what happens if we believe that? It begs the question that why after we come to Jesus, there's still things left over in us that need to go, that need to be removed, that need to change. Amen. And sometimes it can get convincing, you know, like, well, if old things passed away, if all, th all things have become new, if I'm a new creation, then why do I still struggle with some issues in my mind and in my heart and in my body that, you know, didn't go away when I surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ? And the answer to that, to answer the confusion is this. There is a difference between positional righteousness and personal holiness, you were taking notes today, write that down. Positional righteousness and personal holiness. And the difference between these two theological topics answers the question that why we, when we come to Jesus and we get saved and we're brand new, that there's still some old st stuff in us that has to go. Positionally, when God looks at us, he does not see sinners anymore. How many understand that theology? Say amen if you believe that. We come to Jesus, he, he saves us, he forgives us of our sin, he fills us with the Holy Spirit, he covers us with the blood of the Lamb, amen? And when he looks at you and I, he sees righteousness, amen? He doesn't see Rick the sinner, Rick the loser, Rick who's a hot mess, hello? Hopefully that's not what you see either, but, you know, God doesn't see that when he looks at us, he sees Jesus. And positionally, that means in God's sight, we are righteous. We have right standing before God. So yes, we're brand new. We're a new creature. All, all, all those things passed away, we're new. But <coughs> if you understand that once you snap back into reality here and you're talking about personal holiness, all of us are still imperfect. Any imperfect people out there? Amen. Still only half of the people raise their hand. <laughs> If I could get 100% of hands raised, anyone want a $100 bill? <laughs> Still, only half the people. It's amazing. I give up. So, you know, positionally, as God sees us, we're righteous, we're holy, we're brand new. But that personal holiness, we're still imperfect. We still sin. We still have attitudes and habits and appetites in us that need to change. And that's going to be an ongoing work in all of us till the day we leave these earth suits behind and get free from this body of sin, as Paul called it, and caught up to be with Jesus and see him face to face. Amen. So when we come to Jesus, there are a lot of old things that pass away and change and a lot of habits and all these things that are broken. With personal holiness, it's a process. It's the process of sanctification. Say sanctification. That's a theological term for the process by which the Holy Spirit changes Rick from who Rick was into the image of Jesus. That you and I, as we walk with God, become more like Christ than ourselves. And then finally, we're swallowed up in Christ, amen? Because positionally, we're already there. God sees us as perfect and holy and blameless and without sin. But my 
physical man, my, my physical nature is catching up to that reality. Isn't that good news today? Now, the word sanctifying means to set apart for holy use. You and I are being sanctified for the Holy Spirit. God is setting us apart. What is he doing? He's taking the old man out. He's taking the old nature out. He's changing the old appetites and attitudes, and he's making us look like Jesus. So he's setting us apart for holy use. Listen to Romans 12, 2, two texts about sanctification. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Listen to 2 Corinthians 3, 18. But we all, with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, there it is again, into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Holy Spirit of the Lord. So both of those texts talk about the process of being transformed. Transformation is a process. You're not transformers. You're not Optimus Prime. You don't just change from one thing to the next just like that. You know, those of us who grew up watching the cartoon got all excited, me and Ricky. Okay, it's a slow process of transformation, amen? So slowly he's working in us. So you say, Pastor, why are you saying all this? Because I want you to know if you're sitting out there today and you're struggling or you're a hot mess or you got a lot of rough edges, you're okay and you're in the right place, Amen. There are no perfect people here. Our ushers are well-trained. If they spot a perfect person at the door, they send them right back to their cars. Because there are no perfect people here. We're all a work in progress. So cut yourself some slack. Give yourself a break. Be accepting of others who still have rough edges. Come on this morning. Amen. So it's a transformation, a process, positionally, we are righteous in God's sight. But personally, God is working holiness in us by way of a process, that sanctification process. God is setting each of us apart for holy use. Now, Hebrews 10, 12 gives us a picture of the how and the why this process is happening. Listen to what Hebrews uh, 10, 12, 14 says. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Where's Jesus? He's seated at the right hand of God. For that time waiting till all his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being justified. Did you hear that? One offering he perfected. Who? Those who are being justified. A process. It's all in that text there that clarifies this idea of the difference between positional righteousness and personal holiness. So Jesus is seated. What does that mean? In Scripture, when someone's seated, it means it's a sign of completion, that it's finished. Calvary is a finished work. Your salvation is finished in the sense where you're saved and he's got you, but he's perfecting you day by day. Jesus is just waiting for everything in creation to catch up to what he did on the cross. He's redeemed every part of it. He's redeemed creation, he's redeemed the earth, and he's redeemed you and I. Come on this morning. See, theology can be fun. Because it's an exciting thing to realize this, everything is going according to plan. If you're feeling like, you know, you're behind the curve and you're not getting any better, the Holy Spirit's committed to perfecting each one of us that belong to the Lord. Amen. 
So why does God remove some sins and some habits and some appetites and some attitudes at the minute of conversion and others remain in us? Well, the answer is only he knows. And he and you say, well, man, I wanted everything to go. Could you imagine if everything went and we were really, you know, you know, we had it all together? Come on, just imagine for a minute. It's shocking, isn't it? You know, we're all that in a bag of chips from one shop. Boom, look at that. Woo. Do you imagine how proud we would be? Do you imagine how arrogant we would get? Can you imagine how we'd look down on others who weren't? I mean, even in our imperfect state, religious people have a tendency to look down on others. So the reason God leaves some stuff in us that needs to be worked on and worked out is because he's using that to keep us humble, to keep us on our knees, to keep us in his face and desperate for the move of God. Come on this morning. Now, you and I, if we could choose, would choose to just have it all got to be perfect, but that won't happen until we see him face to face. While we're here... We're all works in progress. If you could see yourself in the spiritual realm, all of us would look like buildings with scaffolding around them, with workers, with dump trucks pulling up, taking junk away, with cement trucks pouring. Come on. Uh, you know, it's it just, we're works. Uh, we're, we're being, you know, we're in process. We're not like, you know, we're a construction site. It's messy. It's dirty. It's muddy. It's loud. So whether we like it or not, we're works in progress. There are three things that we covered in verse 31 that had to go, and bitterness, wrath, and anger. And there are three more that we're going to look at today. Clamor, and that's the first one, slander and malice. Let's take a look at clamor today. Clamor's got to go. Say, got to go. Everything must go. We're out of business, amen? So that clamor's got to go. Now, how many have used the word clamor in a sentence this week? I'm waiting for one hand to go up. No, no, we don't say that word clamor. What is that loud clamor coming from? No, we don't say it. So let's go to the Greek. The Greek word is krauge. It means noisy commotion and an uproar. So as a rule, believers should not be loud, obnoxious, annoying people. Some, some people are mad. Man, those are my three best qualities right there. What, you know. As a rule, believers should not be, we shouldn't be loud, we shouldn't be obnoxious, we shouldn't be annoying. If you've, if you've ever seen people in public that are just so loud, I mean, the older I get, the, you know, you go to these places to eat and it's so loud. You know, we were out the other night and there was these people, you know, just screaming next to the table next to us. And I'm like, oh, I'm getting old, it's too loud. But... Christians categorically shouldn't be that type of person, you know, that we're just these loud, aggressive, obnoxious, you know, stirring up trouble, making a scene. That's not who we should be. And you say, well, why is that? Because loud, aggressive, argumentative people are not Christ-like. Jesus was none of those things. Jesus wasn't a big mouth. Jesus wasn't arguing with the Pharisees all the time, screaming and yelling at them. You know, Jesus wasn't, you know, just stirring up a ruckus in public wherever he went on purpose. The ruckus would get stirred up, but that wasn't Jesus. Jesus wasn't screaming and yelling and picking fights and starting trouble. That's not who he is at all. So as Christians, that's not who we should be at all. Now, listen. Having said all that, I want to acknowledge something. I understand some cultures are louder than others. 
Come on, where's my noisy peeps out there? I said, some cultures are louder than others. You know, with my culture, we're loud. People always say to me, why are you yelling? And I'm not, I'm not yelling. That's the way I talk. Right? You get around some cultures, they're really loud. In fact, I did a Google search on that. I said, what are the loudest cultures? And what I got was that the, the loudest, most expressive cultures are the Latino, African-American, Caribbean, and Arab cultures. They are the loudest. And then the, 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 the cultures that are the quietest are the American Indians, the Native Alaskans, the Latin American indigenous people. So you got some groups that are so quiet, they prefer to whisper and talk quietly. And then there's the rest of us. <laughs> that at my house at Thanksgiving, if you can't scream at a high level, no one is going to hear what you had to say. Right? We talk loud. We talk over each other. It's like... It's just the way it is. So I understand all that. Now, I want to say something about this. It's a cultural thing, yes. Now, if you have a group of Latin American men watching a soccer game, it's going to get loud, right? It's not like, oh, a goal. <laughs> it's goal. You know, they, I don't know how they say goal that long. If you go to an African village and they're celebrating, have you ever seen the way some of these cultures, the drums and the music and the dancing, it's loud. If you get two old Italian ladies arguing over whether it's gravy or sauce, it's going to get loud. We settled this in first service. It's gravy. If you say it's sauce, you can just get out right now. See, it's getting loud. And it's a cultural thing, so I get all that. And I want to say this, being loud isn't necessarily bad. It's still, okay? I'm just waiting for you to accept that. Being loud isn't necessarily bad. Being loud, listen, is not necessarily clamor. Clamor has an edge to it. It's not just loud. It's not just celebratory. It's not just jubilant. Clamor has an edge to it that will make the hair on your neck stand up. Clamor has an edge to it where it bristles with potential violence. If you've ever been out in the street, maybe you've been in New York City or something, all of a sudden you hear some yelling and screaming and your body tenses up and you, the fight or flight response kicks in. Come on, you country bumpkins, I'm telling you what goes on out there. And then, come on, how many people from the city where you hear a certain amount of noise and you're just waiting for the gunshots to follow? I remember being in ministry in uh, Queens. I stayed down there for many weeks uh, doing ministry down there and it was during the crack epidemic in the, in the 80s. And I am not kidding, every night we would hear yelling, screaming, car door slamming, and then we would hear automatic gunfire. <laughs> Sirens going off, alarms, ambulances, and that's, I mean, when you heard the clamor begin, immediately you would start to, you know, you'd start to get ramped up a little bit. Clamor has an edge to it. Clamor bristles with violence. It's not just loud, it's not just celebratory. There's something different about clamor. And so... Understand, if you're loud or if you're quiet, that's not the issue that God's saying you, need, you all need to settle down and be quiet. No, he, he's saying clamor, and it's a different thing. Now, let me say a few things about clamor here. Yelling and screaming almost always leads to more yelling and screaming. 
You think, well, I'll just get loud and everything will settle down and it'll all be good again. No, that's not the way it works. When you yell and scream, it leads to more yelling and screaming. And the more you yell and scream, the more you have to yell and scream. Come on, parents, you know what I'm talking about. Proverbs 15.1 says, a gentle answer turns away wrath. A gentle answer. But harsh words stir up anger. Screaming and yelling leads to more screaming and yelling. If you always have to yell to make your point or to get your way, I just want you to know something. That is not going to work forever. When it comes to parenting, children all the time that have parents that yell and scream, eventually the child will tune you out. I've known people, I've seen families where both the mother and the father constantly yelling and screaming at the kids, and the kids can ignore it, like, just incredible. They they could be yelling and screaming, the kid's still playing a video game. Yelling and screaming, not even paying attention to what's being said. Why? Because clamor is not the right way to parent. And that yelling and screaming will eventually cause your children to just completely tune you out. Now, discipline, when it comes to disciplining our children, we have to discipline them. You know this, right? Because our world has quit on discipline, and we have made some monsters in this generation. We have to discipline our children. But our discipline should always start off calm and direct and devoid of emotion. We should have our emotions under control before we correct our children especially little children, a soft answer is what turns away wrath. If we go from zero to 100 every time and our anger is explosive and, and, and we're creating this clamor, we're damaging our children. When I was young, you know, if we got in trouble, my dad had a real long fuse. If you got him to yell at you, then you messed up like a long way back. I remember thinking, man, we got Fred mad. Uh Uh-oh, we're in trouble now. You know, and you you realize that we should have a long fuse when it comes to dealing with our children. And we should always have our emotions under control. Look, I know they will drive you to the brink of insanity. So take, and what, you know, what do we do? We give them a timeout. Sometimes we need a timeout. Go in your bedroom, take a few deep breaths, quote some scripture to yourself. And get control of your emotions before you discipline them. Because we have the very real capacity to create clamor in our house. And it's not pleasing to the Lord. How about in marriage? Yelling and screaming at each other as married people is not God's idea of healthy communication. (laughs) I've heard some couples say, uh, you know, they get loud and they yell and scream. They said, we're not fighting, we're having intense fellowship. Look, if your relationship is marked by intense fellowship, something needs to be adjusted because we don't need to create clamor in our marriages. Now, I know just as there are certain cultures that are different and louder than others, certain people's communication styles are as well. And the truth is that when it comes to marriage, all of us are going to have intense fellowship from time to time. Look at you all trying to look so innocent out there. But, you know, it's part and parcel of being in close proximity to each other for all all that time that sometimes, you know, we get loud with each other, and that's understandable. But our relationship should not be marked by volume and clamor and intense fellowship over every issue. 
A wise old rabbi once explained to a couple who was about to be married how communication and listening skills worked in marriage. He said to them, he said, the first year of marriage, the husband speaks and the wife listens. The second year of marriage, the wife speaks and the husband listens. Every year after that, both of them speak loudly and the neighbors listen. <laughs> yeah, some of you know what I mean. And the ones who aren't laughing, you're not fooling anybody. <laughs> but that seems the way it works in relationships. And, and I want to tell you something. God has a better plan for us than that. Do my wife and I have intense fellowship times sometimes? Absolutely. She's Canadian. She has a hockey stick. I, you know, it, it's, it's, it can be dangerous. But, but sure, we raise our voices sometimes. But you know what? Like the scripture says, we don't let the sun go down on a wrath. You know, when we, when we have intense fellowship, we work through it and we communicate with each other and we love one another. Sometimes, some of you, you need to apologize. I know. When I said apologize, I, if I had a tire and it would run, the oxygen got sucked out of the room. Yeah, sometimes all of us need to apologize to one another. And ladies, not just the men, the women too. And women, you know, sometimes he's 90% wrong. You're t sometimes it goes the other way. But we got to be humble enough to both apologize. Sometimes you should have communion with each other and just restore your relationship. Because it was so volatile. It was so loud. There was so much clamor. You, you've disrupted your relationship. So whether it's in parenting or in marriage, clamor is not the way God expects us to, you know, communicate with us. It's not what our relationships should be about. But if your relationships are about intense fellowship and clamor all the time, something is broken that needs to be healed. Let's talk about slander. It's the, ne it's the next thing on our list here that the scripture says has to be removed from us. And the Greek word for slander is blasphemia. <coughs> it's where we get our English word blasphemy. Now, here's the definition of slander according to the Greek. Evil speech that is hurtful to the reputation of another and sometimes the sin of accusatory speech towards God. So slander is what? Saying hurtful things about another person, uh, you know, to wound them, to, to, to destroy, you know, people's perception of them. And sometimes slander is when we accuse God of things he's not guilty of. And that approach is blasphemy. So a slanderer, you know, is someone who says things, especially that are unfounded and untrue. No, notice, when we say things, we should not repeat secondhand information. We shouldn't say things that we don't know to be true. We shouldn't say what we heard of other people's gossip as if it was true. But the slanderer doesn't care if it's true or not. They use it as ammunition against another person. They say things that may be unfounded or even untrue. They know it's not true, but they're saying it again. Why? Because their purpose is to diminish the standing of another person in other people's eyes. I don't like you, and I don't want anybody to like you. I want to diminish your standing in the view of other people. So I'm going to slander you. And I'll say things that may or may not be true or even some things that I know aren't true just to build my case to get you on my side to slander you. You see how slander is evil? Slander is not just feeling a certain way about someone. It's wanting others to feel the same way with you as well. It's bu building a team or a coalition against another person. 
especially when it's not true. You know, even if it is true, we need to ask ourselves, do I need to be spreading or sharing this information about somebody? Is it any of my business or is it gossip? I found out a long time ago, I need to find out what my business is and mind it. If it's not your business, stay out of it. Well, you know, Christians don't gossip, Pastor. We share. (laughs) Did you hear what so-and-so did? Did you hear what happened in so-and-so's relationship? Did you hear what that pastor did? Did you hear how that church fell apart? Why? Why are we carrying water for the devil? Why are we spreading things around that we are not involved in, that we may not even know the details? You know what I find out? People stand against leadership when we make decisions all the time, and they don't know any of the facts. But sitting there as armchair quarterbacks, they know, well, he shouldn't have done that, or he shouldn't have said that, or he shouldn't have did And they don't know any of the details. But they judge, and they slander, and they attack God's anointed. And listen, those who do that will not go unpunished. Slander is a big problem in our culture, and it's also a problem in the body of Christ. Now, slander is not just diminishing the view of another in the sight of other people, but slander is also us saying things about God in an accusatory way. How many times have you heard people who don't have a relationship with God or they don't even believe in God when something goes wrong, an earthquake, a hurricane, uh, a disaster, they blame God immediately? God's mean, God's unfair, God's unjust. How could a loving God do X, Y, and Z, fill in the blank? It's this accusatory speech towards God, accusing him of things that he's not guilty of. That's dangerous. That approaches blasphemy. You and I should never accuse God. I understand we get upset, we get emotional, we get disappointed sometimes. But listen, we should know that our God is a good God. He's a loving God. He's a just God, amen? And even if we don't get it or we don't understand or we're not happy with the outcome, we better be very careful that we don't slander God. God broke his promise to me. Absolutely never. He's incapable of doing it. So slander can be against a person to diminish their standing in the eyes of others. Slander can be against God in an accusatory way, and that's a dangerous thing. It approaches blasphemy. Uh, There are some times where we do need to speak against leadership, where we do need to speak against the false teacher, the false prophet, or an evil leader. Too much of the church has become spineless in that they won't speak up against the sinful injustices of our generation. There are too many churches that say, well, you know, I don't want to get political or I don't want to do this or I don't want to speak to the culture. Well, then how in the world can you be salt and light? Do you realize that during World War II in Nazi Germany, there was a percentage of the church that actually supported Hitler? There was another percentage of the church that vehemently spoke out against Hitler. But the large majority of the church said, we don't want to get involved. And so they didn't vote, and they didn't stand up against Nazism, and Hitler came to power legally. He was voted in. If the church would have took a stand, they could have kept him from being voted in. Now think about this. What happened when he got voted in, immediately he had all those pastors who stood against him corralled up and taken away and never seen from again. He murdered them. And do you know which group he went after next? The ones that didn't want to get involved. 
and Hitler totally decimated the church of Germany. Church, it's time for us to have some moral clarity, to have some backbone, to be able to have a biblical worldview of things, amen? To be able to say, yes, we're going to get involved. We're going to speak truth to power. We're going to stand against wickedness and evil in our generation. But if you have to do that, you need to make sure what you're saying is 100% true and not just your opinion or what somebody else thinks. Otherwise, it could be slander, and that's a dangerous thing. So we understand that clamor has to go. It has an edge to it that's ungodly. It's not Christ-like. Slander is something that, you know, uh, we should be very careful not to do. We should be very careful not to be accusatory towards God. Sometimes the best thing we could say about something is nothing. That, that's worth getting up and coming to church for. Sometimes the best thing you could say to another person or, or to God is nothing. Don't say anything until you can control your emotions, you can control your speech, and you can hear from the Holy Spirit and speak words of truth and life. Proverbs ten nineteen says this, where there are many words, transgression is unavoidable or sin is unavoidable. But he who restrains his lips is wise. See what I'm talking about, the duct tape? How do I restrain my lips? However you can to restrain those lips, amen. Why? Because what? Where there are many words, when you and I get talking, when you and I get making accusations, when you and I get emotional, we're very likely to cross some lines into slander, and that's not pleasing to God. But if we can learn to restrain our lips, the scripture says that we're wise. Let's close down with malice today. Malice is the third and last thing we're going to look at out of verse 31. Here we... We, we looked at bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander. Let's talk about malice. It says, they must be removed from you along with all malice. Now, this is one of those things like slander and libel that these things find their way into our court system. How many heard of libel suits or sl slander suits? Have you heard, uh, you know, slander with malice or libel with malice? See, these things become legal charges. Why? Because when you damage someone's relation, repu, you know, when you damage someone's reputation, especially if they're a famous person, that, that could cost them everything. They never get cast in movies anymore. They never get invited to X, Y, and Z. So, you know, when you slander someone and there's malice involved with it, you know, it winds up in court many times. The charge of malice is something that our courtrooms entertain all the time. Now, what exactly is malice? Malice is the desire to cause pain, injury, and distress on another person without provocation or justification. Listen to that. You want to cause pain and injury and distress to a person that never provoked you and you have no justification for it. Have you ever met people that just don't like you because they don't like you? They just met you and something about you they don't like and immediately they have an attitude against you. Maybe it's just me. Maybe everybody loves you. But the truth is some people just don't like us. And a lot of times it's the Holy Spirit in us. It's Christ in us. It's our, the joy of the Lord that we have. It's the victory that's in our lives. And something inside of them does not like that. And they have malice towards us. And they want to hurt us. And they want to embarrass us. And maybe they're nasty to us or they make 
front of us, in front of other people, and we've never done a single thing to them. That's malice. And malice should not be in the Christian heart at all. There are those that want to harm others, and they have done absolutely nothing to them. There are those that want to destroy others and, and, and embarrass others just because they're wealthy, just because of their race, just because of their ethnicity, and all of that is evil. Prejudice is evil. Racism is evil. When you categorically hate a group of people that you've never met, that you don't know, but just categorically, I don't like any of those, fill in the blank. That has no place in the heart of a Christian. Now, I know we have problems at our border, and I know we have problems in our city. There's nothing wrong with wanting a closed border so we can keep fentanyl out, so we can keep human trafficking out, so we can keep uh, gang members out. So that's good. That's a good thing. And anybody tells you that you're a racist because you don't want, you know, fentanyl coming through the border, they're gaslighting you. So have a backbone and stand up and put, put your finger in their face and say, no, we're going to have order. We're going to have law and order in our country. Amen. But listen to me. If you say, well, this group will come across the border. Well, I hate those people. Fill in the blank. That's wrong. That's evil. And that's not Christ-like. So there's a balance here. But you notice how the enemy blurs the lines and confuses the issue and destroys a nation from within because people don't want to accuse of, you know, get accused of having malice in their heart or being racist or, you know, and all of these things. Uh, there again, we need to get the moral clarity and have enough backbone to stand up against the, the names and the accusations. But we have to make sure there's no malice in our heart. You and I as Christians have been told to love our enemies. So how in the world could we walk around with a chip on our shoulder about certain groups of people that, you know, God told us to love and just be looking for an opportunity to have a bone to pick with them? That's the wrong heart. And that's why malice has to be removed. It says remove what? All malice. Well, can't I have just a little malice? No. All that malice has got to go. And what does it get replaced with? Love, acceptance, compassion. Oh, it's so quiet. But that's what we need as a church. Now, I'm not saying we have to, you know, let our country be destroyed from it. No, I'm not saying that at all. Don't conflate the two together. But we have to make sure we have no malice in our hearts. Malice has to go. Slander has to go. We should not be saying things about people to diminish their standing uh, in the sight of others. You and I should not be loud and boisterous to the point where we stir up commotions and troubles that were argumentative and were aggressive. Jesus wasn't like that. His followers shouldn't be like that. Clamor has to go. Let's bow our heads today. Father, I know that some of these things are difficult. Some of these things uh, are so entwined in our culture and even in our own upbringing that, you know, it's difficult for us. But, Lord, you saved us and you set us apart and positionally we're righteous in your sight. So, God, change our hearts today. If, If we have, you know, malicious intentions towards certain people, Father, drain all of that from our hearts and replace it with love. If we ever slander or gossip or talk others down or stir up trouble uh, and and make trouble, Lord God, help us to have gentle answers that turn away wrath and help us to be peacemakers. For your word says, blessed are the peacemakers. 
Work in your people today. Remove all these things from us. Make us look more like Jesus than the old man. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Give him praise this morning.